Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. So this week is one of my favorite weeks of the year. It's Thanksgiving week, right? Thanksgiving week, I love Thanksgiving. It gets, it gets looked over, man. Like people, they just go straight from Halloween to Christmas, but Thanksgiving is, is the best. A lot of that has to do with the fact that my birthday is this week. And so I feel like everybody, you know, gathers to celebrate my birthday in some ways. Um, but also I just love Thanksgiving. I love uh, everything that comes with it. The family time, uh, the football games all day long, right? You can't beat that. But then the food, right? You with me? Are you excited about the food and Thanksgiving? this week. It's so good. Yeah. So start to think, what are the things that you're most looking forward to around your Thanksgiving table, right? What are those things that you just, every year, it's like, it's not Thanksgiving if I don't have that thing. Is it grandma's pie? Is it uh, the stuffing? Is it, you know, the mac and cheese or something like that? I hope you would say something good and not something weird like salad or something like that, you know, something good. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. So I started wondering this week, like what are the foods that people most enjoy or most look forward to around Thanksgiving? And so I did a Google search to try and see if there was some kind of survey out there. And Google led me to MarthaStewart.com and I found a survey of 3,000 people who were saying this is the thing that they look forward to the most on Thanksgiving. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of walk through this a little bit and see where you kind of fall as well. All right, so 3,000 hungry Americans. This is how it broke down. Number two on the list of things that people are most looking forward to this week at Thanksgiving dinner is mashed potatoes, which I found weird, but that's up there. 15% of the people said mashed potatoes was the thing that they were most looking forward to. Number three, pies. Makes a lot of sense, right? How many of you are looking forward to the pies and the desserts? Oh, yeah. Sometimes I start there, right? Let everybody else go through the line, and I start at the dessert table. Uh, number four is casseroles. So those are good, right? Hash brown casserole, sweet potato stuff. It's all, it's all so good. Uh, am I making you hungry? <laughs> if you haven't had breakfast, you're like, oh man. Um, number five is mac and cheese. That's good stuff. Now at the bottom of the list, it gets kind of weird. People said this was the thing that they were most looking forward to. Number, number six here, cranberry sauce. Now that stuff is nasty, right? It's gross. It's so gross. But the bottom of the list is worse than that. Um, two and a half percent of people said the thing they were most looking forward to on Thanksgiving was green beans. That's so weird, right? How many of you, like, would you say that you're looking forward to green beans if that's you? Okay, there are a few of you. That's so weird. We need to pray for those people. Um, you know, you think two and a half percent of 3,000 isn't a lot of people, but that's 75 people <laughs> who were polled said they were most looking forward to green beans. So that's kind of strange. But of course, number one on the list is the turkey, right? How many of you are looking forward to the turkey? I don't care if you smoke it, you grill it, you fry it, whatever. It's, it's good stuff. It's, it's the star of the show. Like you can't have Thanksgiving without the turkey, can you? Can you imagine if you sat down at Thanksgiving dinner and there was no turkey on the table? I mean, it's not Thanksgiving, right? The turkey goes at the center of the table because it is the star of the show, right? So in, in some ways, 
That's, that's the way I want your mind to think, that that is the star of the show. It's the big deal on the table. In a similar way, we're gonna look today at what I believe is the star of the show or at the center of the table of all of human history um, and all of the Bible, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. We're looking at the cross today. It's at the center of the Bible. I mean, not, not by pages or whatever, but by focus, it is the center. Like the Old Testament looks forward to the cross. The gospels proclaim the cross. All four gospels tell us about the scene at the cross. And then the rest of the New Testament looks back to the cross. And then our lives as Christians, as followers of him, is centered around the cross. We never move past it. Uh, the cross is not the starting point of your faith. It is everything. It's at the center of the table. Are you with me? So I think a lot of people uh, today, they know that Jesus died on a cross, but I'm not sure many of us know why he died on a cross. And so that's what I want us to talk about this morning out of Mark chapter 15. So to set the table for you a little bit, uh, that just came to me. I didn't do that in the first service. I'll probably keep it for the next one though. Uh, to set the table for you, um, Jesus has been put on trial, right? Last week in Mark chapter 14, we talked about um, Jesus in the garden and he's praying and uh, he gets arrested, right? He, he's put on trial. They falsely accuse him. He, he's sentenced to death. He's marched up this hill and he's, he's marched to this place called Golgotha where he will be crucified. And where our text picks up this morning, we're gonna start in verse 33, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he's already been on the cross for three hours. And so this text this morning, I know that it's Thanksgiving week and I know that we're excited and maybe you're off work or out of school or something like that. And so you're feeling good this morning. Um, this is a weighty text. It's, it's difficult, it's hard, it's heart wrenching. Um, one writer says that whenever we come to this text, it says surely this, this is a passage we must approach on our knees. D.A. Carson says, our best response to this text is hushed worship. So this is weighty this morning. Um, it's a weighty text. And so before we, before we read it, I would love for us to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. So I'm gonna pray for all of us and you just pray for yourself. Ask the Lord to speak in this time. Let's all pray together. God, we, uh, as we approach the cross, and, and the centerpiece of the table, the centerpiece of all of human history. God, would you help us to see this morning how what you've done on the cross is the center of our lives and how everything else is in response to it. God, would you give us ears to hear, a heart that is open and receptive to you and what you have for us this morning. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. And help us as we discuss it. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 15. We're gonna start in verse 33 together. So Jesus is hanging on the cross when verse 33 starts. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry 
and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. All right, so in this, this text, again, we've been in this series of Mark, and you know how Mark writes by this point. Like, everything is quick, everything is fast. He says, immediately this happened, immediately that happened. He's, he's gotten us to this point. It's the shortest gospel that we have. And on the cross, he, he shows us one statement of Jesus. Now, we know from the other, other gospel accounts that Jesus said seven things or seven documented things on the cross, but Mark only tells us one. This, my God, my God, why have you abandon me. And I think through this one statement, we are going to see why this moment is the center of the story. There's three things I want to show you if you're taking notes that we, that we see about the cross and why it's important for us in our lives through this statement of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Number one, we see the physical suffering of Jesus. Physical suffering. So Jesus cries out. And in this in this cry, like you can almost hear it, right? He, he's crying out in pain because he's being tortured. Now, I, I'm sure you, that you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, right? It came out several years ago and we've seen it. I only watched it once because I couldn't watch it again. But those scenes from that movie still stick in my head and I'm sure they do with you as well. Like you can picture some of the things that Jesus is facing here. The cross is a horrifying scene. It's, it's absolutely horrible. And Mark doesn't give us a lot of details because he's writing to a Roman audience and the Romans are very familiar with crucifixion. They perfected it, right? And so he doesn't need to give them a lot of details. Whenever he says that they crucified Jesus, that Roman audience knows exactly what he's talking about, that crucifixion was the most degrading and the most painful way someone could die. So Jesus is put on trial and, and they, they rip his beard out, they spit on him, they tear off all of his clothes. He, he had a crown of, of thorns placed on his head, smashed down into his, his brow. Some people say that the thorns were probably about three inches long. And as they do that, they're mocking him saying, yeah, you're the king of the Jews, right? They begin to hit him with what's called the, the cat of nine tails, which is a torture device. It's a whip that has several strands of leather that comes off of it that would have pieces of metal, bone, rocks tied into the ends of it. And its purpose as a torture device was to grab skin and rip it off. And so as they're beating Jesus with the cat of nine tails, it's literally grabbing his flesh and ripping it away from his body, exposing muscles and bone and vital organs. Then he's forced to carry his cross up this hill, right? He needed some help. Mark tells us that, that somebody had to help him get there because he's been beaten to a bloody pulp. Scripture says that he's unrecognizable at this point. And he carries up his cross and they begin to place nails in his wrist and in his feet, making him stick to the cross through those nails, right? And what those are there for is so that he can literally push up off of the nails in his feet, pull on the nails in his wrist so that he can take his next breath. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's quoting 
Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, that says, my God, why have you abandoned me? Which I just think is just a subpoint, and it's interesting that in the most painful, most difficult moment of Jesus's life, the thing that was at the forefront of his mind and on his lips was scripture. But Psalm 22, if you read that maybe this afternoon, it's gonna go on to describe a horrible scene. It's gonna describe bones being dislocated, wrists, feet being pierced, skin ripped away, exposing bones. Like that's, that's what Psalm 22 tells us. And all of those things are happening to Jesus here. It's a bloody scene. And the thing about it is, it had to be. Because if you understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, like if you've ever been reading in your Bible, reading plan, you get to Leviticus, you're like, whoa, there's a lot of blood here, right? God established this sacrificial system in which the people could be made right with a holy God by killing an animal and spreading its blood. It's interesting, right? Hebrews tells us that ultimately the blood of bulls and goats could never fully take away sin, but God established this system so that they could have relationship with him before Jesus came, right? And so the, the cross is a bloody scene and it needed to be because the lamb of God was coming to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. In fact, Jesus just told us this in the Passover scene in Mark chapter 14. Jesus told his followers the night before he would be uh, betrayed and, and arrested, he, he said that my blood would be poured out for many in Mark chapter 14, verse 24. And here on the cross, it's happening. So crucifixion was a slow, excruciating death. Sometimes it would take two or three days for a person to finally die because they have to die from suffocation, cardiac arrest, or loss of blood. They're not dying from the pain. They literally can't push themselves up any longer and take their next breath. So it would take days. If it took too long, the guards would come along and break the legs of the, of the person on the cross so that they could no longer push themselves up and take their next breath. This is a, it's a horrible scene. Crucifixion is terrible. The pain was incredible. But that's not all there is to the story. Like if all we think of whenever we think of the cross is the physical pain that Jesus endured, then we'll end up with a very shallow understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. If he was just tortured, it would be tragic, but it wouldn't have any real effect on your life. Sure, it's sad, sure it's, man, we empathize with the pain that he's going through, but there's more going on in this story. So we see the physical suffering of Jesus. Next, number two, we see the spiritual sorrow. Spiritual sorrow that's happening in this moment. So Mark writes very quickly, right? Immediately this, immediately that. Anytime Mark gives you details, you need to pay attention to them. So in verse 33, he says this. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. That's interesting, isn't it? that it's noon and now it's, now it's dark. That doesn't typically happen unless it's some kind of storm or maybe an eclipse like the one we're told is coming next year and like everybody in the world's coming to central Arkansas. That's <laughs> crazy, right? Um, I can't believe that's happening, honestly, that that's a, that's a thing, but it is. Schools are already like out and stuff. Anyways, that's beside the point. That's not what's happening here. This isn't an eclipse. I don't understand the science of it all, but commentators say because it was Passover, because it was full moon, there's not an eclipse. It's not something like that. This is a miracle of God, that God at noon caused darkness to fall over the land. 
right? So what's, what's happening here? I think, it's, I think it's interesting. I think it's, I think it's significant. I think it's a symbolic picture of what's happening to Jesus on the cross. That as he's hanging on the cross, uh, the darkness of sin was placed on him. And this darkness in the world actually symbolized it. So if you remember last week, whenever he was in the garden praying, do you remember his prayer? He said, he said in Mark 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. And we talked about what the cup meant, but in case you weren't here or maybe forgot, I'll remind you, the cup in Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, the cup represents suffering the wrath of God. All right? Suffering the wrath of God. So in the garden, when Jesus is down on his face and he's crying and he's sweating blood, he's not dreading the physical pain of the cross. He's dreading the fact that he's going to have to go to the cross and drink down every single drop of God's wrath on the cross. And so now, in Mark 15, he's no longer dreading it. He's no longer anticipating drinking the cup of God's wrath. He's experiencing it for hours. And at the cross, God poured out his full judgment towards sin on Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6, it's a prophecy looking forward to the cross, right? Um, Isaiah 53, 6 says that we are all like uh, sheep who have gone astray. And the iniquity or the sin of all of us was placed on Jesus. Isaiah 53, 10 goes on to say that the Lord was pleased to crush the son. So Jesus in this moment takes on the sin of the world and the father is pleased to crush him severely. Listen, you need to know that sin demands a payment. It demands a payment. Like God can't be God and be cool with sin. He's perfectly holy and righteous. He can't be fine with looking on your sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages or the payment for sin is death. And so Jesus goes to the cross, and in this moment, he becomes that for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it better than I can. Paul says that he, that's talking about the Father, made the one, Jesus, who knew no sin. He was perfect. He was spotless. He was blameless. Father made him who knew no sin to be sin. That's what it says. Be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean for Jesus to be sin on the cross. That means that the sin of every single person on earth, past, present, and future, was placed on Jesus in this moment. That's what the darkness is symbolizing, that the sin of the world is placed on him. So the key to understanding the cross is what's happening to Jesus here is what you and I deserve. Jesus didn't deserve it. He was spotless, he was blameless, he was perfect. He never once sinned. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 just told us. But because of what we've done, our sin, Jesus was crushed for us. He was crushed because of our sin. So listen, you can know your value and your worth as a person by looking at what the God of the universe was willing to pay for you. He experienced all of this so that you wouldn't have to. So we see in this moment on the cross, we see the physical suffering of Jesus. We see the spiritual sorrow. Finally, number three, we see the relational separation. 
relational separation. That's what's happening in this moment. When, when Jesus cries out, he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? See, a major theme of chapter 14 and 15 of Mark is Jesus is completely cut off and abandoned by everyone around him. He's completely alone, right? Just think back to the story last week of Jesus in the garden. Before he goes to the garden and prays, he tells his disciples, he says, one of you is gonna, gonna sell me out. One of you is gonna go and sell me for a few pieces of silver and, and sell me over to a mob. Jesus then goes into the garden and prays with his disciples and, and, and he's saying, hey, I need you to come and be with me in this moment. And they just keep falling asleep. The mob comes in, Jesus goes out to meet them and all of his disciples just scatter and run away. Hours later, Jesus' best friend Peter denies even knowing Jesus three times. In chapter 15, Jesus is standing in front of an angry crowd and the question is asked, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas, this known insurrectionist, this known killer? And the, the crowd starts chanting for Barabbas. Like the picture is clear, Jesus is completely, completely and utterly alone. And not only that, Jesus is being mocked by everybody. The chief religious leaders, the, the Roman guards. Verse 29 says, says, quote, everyone passing by was just hurling insults at Jesus. We even see it in our text here where like maybe Elijah will come and get him down. Like he's just mocked, he's all alone. Relationally separated from all of humanity. And I want you to remember, like Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man and he's utterly alone. And on a human standpoint, maybe that's one of the worst parts of all of this is just how alone that he is. I think in the garden, I think he invites his closest friends to come pray with him, not because he needs their prayers, but because he needs a friend. He needs loved ones with him in this terrible moment and they just fall asleep. They scatter, they leave him. He's all alone. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've felt this, like you've felt alone, you've felt abandoned, maybe you feel it right now. You need to know Jesus has felt it too. And he promises to actually be with you. He promises to never, never leave you. But the point is clear, like everyone Scripture says, abandon Jesus, even the Father. And I think that's the worst part. Verse 34, that cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That's heart-wrenching. That the cry of the Son of God is now experiencing something he had never known in all of eternity. He's experiencing separation from the Father. Like from this moment, the, 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 the Son is separated from the Father. There's distance between the two. I think that's why the, the prayer here that he cries out in chapter 15, my God, my God, is different from the one he just prayed in the garden where he says, Abba, Father, if you were with us last week, we talked about how Abba uh, is the Aramaic word that, that you and I would, would maybe say dad. Like dad is different than father. It, it, it tells us there's deep relationship there. That's how Jesus prayed in the garden. Now on the cross, he's saying, my God, my God. I think it's because in this one moment of all 
of time, Jesus views himself not as the father's son, but as the sinner's sacrifice. That's not to say that Jesus stops being the son in this moment. That's, that's not true, but Jesus, there is separation here. He becomes the sinner's sacrifice on the cross because as the sin of the world is placed on Jesus in this moment, he's abandoned by the father because the father cannot look on sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so the father, God had to turn away from Jesus. So the physical agony that Jesus experienced on the cross was horrible. But the relational separation that Jesus experienced in this moment from the father was the ultimate torture. And so you need to understand like that's what's happening in this, in this moment, that Jesus is being, he, he's suffering physically, he's, he's experiencing the spiritual sorrow and he's experiencing the relational separation of God. But here is the good news, all right? This is where the good news breaks in. Because he was relationally separated, you don't have to. Like you don't have to be separated from God because he was. Verse 37. Again, Mark just quickly moves through, through this and, and, and the most massive moment in all of history, we get one little verse where he says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And Jesus died. The God, man, God in the flesh died. And then what happens next is pretty interesting. Immediately after that, Mark shifts our eyes from Jesus on the cross and he takes us across the city and into the temple. It's kind of interesting, right? This is like whenever you got like a little kid and you're trying to get them to see something that's out there and so they're, they're having trouble seeing it so you just grab their little face and just point it, you know? We were on a cruise with our family earlier this year and we were standing on our balcony and my five-year-old Ames was out there with me and I was like, hey buddy, there's some dolphins out there, check it out. And he was like, where, you know? So I grab his little face and I just point it right there at it. That's what Mark's doing here. Whenever Jesus breathes his last, Mark says, hey, look at the curtain in the temple. Look over here, look at verse 38. Mark says, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now what's happening here? This is significant. There's this curtain that, that would hang in the temple that, that essentially it separated sinful people from God, all right? It was massive, it was this huge curtain. Uh, scholars say that it was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and very, very thick. Some people say the, the width of a man's hand, so somewhere between six and 10 inches thick. It would take tons of people to even hang it, they said, right? And what it did is it hung between what was called the most holy place, and everybody else, essentially. In the most holy place, that's where the presence of God was said to dwell, and there was the, the altar there, and that's, that's the place where God's presence dwelt. One time a year, the high priest would go behind that curtain to offer a sacrifice for the sins of everybody. He would go behind this curtain to spread blood on the altar, but before he would go in there, he would have to put on a robe that had all these little bells on it, and they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case in the presence of God, he fell down dead. If they stopped hearing the bells, they'd drag his body out of there. So he goes behind the curtain, but that's not a place where man is supposed to be. 
It could only happen one time a year. This curtain separated man from God. And in the moment that Jesus dies, Mark shifts our eyes to this curtain in the temple and says that it tore in half, top to bottom, meaning God did this. It couldn't have been done by man. Like man would tear it from bottom to top. Even if they could, it's, it's six inches uh, thick, right? But, but God tears it from the top to the bottom. It's significant for a few reasons. It tells us that the barrier between man and God is now broken. That's good. The barrier between man and God is now broken. It also tells us that, that the old way of just endless temple sacrifices is done. See, they had to continually be making sacrifices in the temple in order to atone for people's sin. In fact, what's interesting is during Passover week, the temple is likely filled with thousands of sacrifices being made at this moment. And whenever the one true sacrifice, the Lamb of God is sacrificed for the sins of everyone, that curtain temple, or that, that curtain in the temple just splits right in two saying, hey, this old system is, is dead and gone. If you're looking for something to read today, read Hebrews chapter 10. It talks all about it. But the third thing, I think that it's the reason it's significant that the, the curtain tears and Mark shifts our eyes there is it is telling us that God in all of his glory is now completely accessible to you and me. See, the curtain divided. The curtain kept man from God, but now it's been torn down. It's, it's ripped in half. So the good news of the cross is that before the cross, we were all cast out of God's presence. The Bible says that we are alienated from him, that we are actually called enemies of God. But, but now, because of the cross and what Jesus has just accomplished by, by shedding his blood and dying a death there on the cross, we're no longer cast out of God's presence. Now, we're invited in to his presence. Do you see it? That's good news. So, as we close, do you see why the cross is so significant? Do you see why it's at the center of the table? It's not just a story about some naked man dying on a wooden cross on the side of some random hill in ancient Israel some 2,000 years ago. It's not, not about that. This is, this is the holy God of the universe giving his son to die our death, endure our punishment, and suffer our separation so that sinners like you and me could be welcomed in, could be brought near, brought close. And all of history revolves around this scene. And what I would say is all of your life is determined by how you respond to this scene. Is the cross of Jesus at the center of your life? Is it at the center of everything that you are, everything that you do, everything that you believe? It all centers around this, that Jesus died a death you should have died. And, and, and because of that, now you live for him. I love, I love how the scene ends. In verse 39, it ends with the words of a Gentile Roman centurion or army guy, probably the one who is overseeing the execution. And this is what he says, verse 39. It says, when the centurion 
saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Do you remember how Mark started? Whenever we started this series several weeks ago, I want you to look at it. Mark 1.1, flip over there with me. This is, this is the way the book starts. This is Mark's purpose in writing it to you. It says, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's his purpose. He wants you to see Jesus for who he is, that he is the son of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. After Mark opens his book that way, uh, down in verse nine, you see the baptism of Jesus whenever Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And it says this, that, the, that as Jesus came up out of the water, the sky was torn open. Same word that's used about the curtain. It's only used twice in the book of Mark, at Jesus' baptism and with the curtain. And as soon as he comes up, you hear a voice from heaven say, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That's been the goal. And then now after the death of Jesus, he breathes his last. Mark lets us hear from this, from this no-name Gentile man who declares, it's all true. <laughs> He's the son of God. And I think Mark's goal in writing this to us is so it, so that you and me would declare the same thing, that it's all been true. He's the son of God. I read a story this week about an evangelist named Alexander Wooten. He was working in his shop and he was just kind of pilling around or whatever and this guy comes up to him and, and asks him, says, hey, what do I need to do to be saved? Alexander Wooten, he just kind of kept working and didn't really even look up from what he was doing. He said, it's too late. The man was kind of confused. He said, what do you mean it's, it's too late? Like, there's nothing that I can do to be saved. And Wooten looked at him and says, it's too late because it's already been done. The only thing that you can do is believe. And friends, that's the good news of the gospel, that the work is done. Jesus has done it. He died a death that you should have died. Like your sin separates you from God, but he loved you so much that he put on skin and bone and he came to this earth to die and shed his blood in your place. He was dead. They put him in a tomb. We'll see it next week. And he comes out of that thing alive proving that he's God, proving that he has power over sin and death forever. And the offer extended to you this morning in Conway, Arkansas, is to trust Jesus and be saved from your sin. Place your trust in this one, who the centurion stood there and watched him die and said, it's all been true, he's the son of God. The work is finished, the gift is free. Scripture just says, repent and believe. Famous verse, John 3, 16. For God loved the world, anyone and everyone, the whole world, in this way, that he gave his only son. Meaning this, he loved the whole world. This, this offer, this 
invitation to trust him as your savior is open to anyone and everyone, but it's also limited as that verse would go on to say, so that everyone who believes in him would not die, but would have eternal life. Jesus has done everything necessary. His death is sufficient to save you, but it's effective only for those who place their trust in him. And so my invitation to you, my goal, my plead would be if you don't know him today, man, today is the day. Today's the day you stop messing around. Today's the day you stop thinking about it or, think, or pushing it down the road. Today is the day that you trust Jesus as your Savior. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.